Hello, and welcome to FabGab. This is the podcast for the International Journal of Feminist Approaches to Bioethics, brought to you by Fab Network. My name is Catherine McKay, and today I'm joined by Stephanie Tillman from St. Louis University to discuss her paper entitled Presumed Consent for Pelvic Exams Under Anesthesia is Medical Sexual Assaults. Hello, Stephanie. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you very much for joining me. Um, So I wonder if you could give our listeners the paper in a nutshell. Sure. So this paper is about educational pelvic exams under anesthesia, which are pretty commonplace in many hospitals or in educational settings from the perspective of student learners, namely medical students, but are not considered common at all for patients. And the paper Uh, in the way that I framed it, is to discuss how presuming a patient's consent for educational pelvic exams under anesthesia actually would meet criteria for sexual assault. And I approach that from a couple different places. The first is to talk about rape culture generally and the ways that um, some people's bodies are assumed uh, penetratable, uh, penetrable, um, and also at the discretion of someone in power and how outside of a healthcare setting, there are better understood and respected definitions of when someone's body has been assaulted. But within healthcare settings, clinicians and educators um, somehow redefine um, what that looks like. And um, for patients, um, not only for sexual assault survivors in the healthcare setting, but for all patients to have someone's body uh, be penetrated while they're unconscious is a very big deal. Um, And from not only patients speaking for themselves, but then medical students who have conducted these exams, um, there's a lot of moral distress uh, and there is a lot of concern for um, whether or not this is sexual assault. There's also a growing legal movement that identifies these exams as sexual assault, but that's only in some states. And even in those states, educators and clinical learners still struggle with understanding why or under what conditions what they're doing qualifies as sexual assault. So some of what I do in this paper is talk about why we should be talking about pelvic examinations as penetration um, and how from both a feminist and a queer theory lens, that's an act of um, reclaiming the language from the patient experience to say what is happening to them. And also to talk about um, why the patient's point of view is the most important, uh, particularly when we're talking about intimate exams, when we're talking about people who are already vulnerable within the asymmetric hierarchy of patients and providers, and then also have additional sex and gender-based vulnerabilities within the system by nature of the people who can receive a pelvic exam um, as the ones um, that I'm referencing in the paper are in terms of educational um, tools. Uh, But then also um, recent data shows that these exams are happening more often uh, on patients of color. And so it's a sex and gender-based harm. It's also a racially-based harm uh, that's happening within healthcare that's part of the history of pelvic health care that continues today. 
And um, part of my goal in being very blunt and being very forthright about calling this a form of sexual assault, um, naming it medical sexual assault, is to really use the shock value on purpose to get people to pay attention um, to what is happening. Yeah, thank you. I feel like I have a couple of sort of clarification questions, if you will. I mean, it's it's really stunning to think about this happening. So I guess my first sort of question for me and for the listeners is just like, what's the prevalence? How much does this actually happen? And I guess that's also connected to a question about like jurisdiction. Where does it happen? Does it happen sort of all over the world or is this something, has it been outlawed anywhere? You're saying something about the different states um, in the U.S., but like what's, is there something happening outside of the U.S.? So as far as I know, there's no international data to talk about where else this is happening. We do know that it is happening across the United States. Um, Medical students every few years will come forward to disclose that they were put in the position of being told to practice an exam. It does take a unique medical student to feel empowered to do so, to feel safe doing so, to find the right outlet to do so. And also it takes a unique student to know how wrong it is, uh, particularly because within rape culture, so many people are normalized to how we learn on other people's bodies or um, how normal penetration is in some people's worlds to think that that exam uh, may not rise to the level of explicit consent for a patient. Um, It's happening across all types of surgeries. So a lot of people will assume it's only happening when someone's coming in for a surgery related to their pelvis or related to their um, obstetric or gynecologic healthcare, when in actuality it's happening across all surgeries. Um, And again, the data is very hard to know exactly. Um, There was a study that came out um, that showed just some general idea of how often it's happening. Um, But the most recent data shows that it's happening far more often than we would think all across the U.S., across um, different sex and gender identities. So there is concern it's happening for anyone who can receive a rectal exam. Um, There's also reasonable concern to worry that anyone under anesthesia might become an educational tool um, for any part of their body. So it could be that um, patients are experiencing penile exams, breast or chest exams, again, rectal exams on top of um, any pelvic examination. And really this sort of comes um, from wanting to ensure that students are getting appropriate experience, that they're having an opportunity um, to learn pelvic examinations out of a worry, either that that surgical patient would not consent to that exam, or that once the student is in the clinical setting, the patients would be declining. Um, So, Perhaps for some people, it is coming from a place of beneficence, wanting to make sure that students are having these opportunities and also wanting patients to not experience pain or discomfort while a student is learning the early portions of an exam. Um, However, we have enough data, we have so much data to show that patients want to be asked 
and that most patients will say yes if they are asked, particularly if they're asked respectfully, if there's um, a very clear understanding of what is happening. Instead, the cognitive dissonance in clinical education is the educators are not asking because they assume the patient would say no. And some of what I talk about in this paper are the multiple layers of harms that that causes. That if you think someone's going to say no and you do something anyway, what is that harm? If um, you believe that someone would decline being penetrated, but you're going to force penetration on them anyway, what is that harm? Um, so trying to find the names for those harms is part of what I was trying to do. Yeah. And I think you've just answered something that I was going to ask you, which is basically like, so people are not asking. So the the patients have widely, clearly said that they'd like explicit consent for this. And it turns out most people would say yes if they were asked, but it seems like the presumption has been that they would say no. And so the idea is, well, we just won't ask. I mean, that just seems totally appalling. Um, um, you're right to be appalled. <laughs> um, I'm appalled. I remember when I was a clinical learner and I um, came to learn that this happened, I was so taken aback. I almost didn't have words to describe how offensive it was to understand that part of my own colleague's learning uh, was essentially completely disregarding consent and penetrating someone without their knowledge. Some of what I talk about in the paper, in fact, the way I open the paper is um, with a song lyric that essentially refers to someone being assaulted while unconscious at a party. And in the introduction, I compare that to, um, you know, when someone is sexually assaulted, very often there are these questions about what were you wearing? Did you say no? How forcefully did you say no? And in a clinical setting, someone is dressed in a hospital gown. They feel like they have to say yes to certain things. They don't even know what they're not saying yes to. Um, and in both circumstances for a drugged assault, whether we're talking about in a healthcare setting or in um someone being sexually assaulted outside of the healthcare setting, people will wake up and realize something is not right. They will realize that there is gel on the outside of their genitalia. They will recognize that they have pain, um, especially if penetration is not typically a part of their life, or especially if there are other reasons that they would know that they had been penetrated. Um, people are waking up and knowing that something happened to them and it's absolutely unacceptable um, that that would ever happen in a healthcare setting. It's also heartbreaking. It's also, um, infuriating, but it's, um, it's unethical and it is violence and, um, really drawing, uh, the strongest comparisons I can to the ways that people are sexually assaulted elsewhere, um, to say, why are we allowing so many similarities to exist in the healthcare setting? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I want to pick up on something that you sort of said at the beginning, because you were talking about your clinical experience and, um, you also go by the moniker, the feminist wit midwife. Um, so you are a practicing midwife. Um, and I guess this might be a good time to ask you sort of, who were you writing this for? Were you writing this for your clinical peers? Yeah, that's a good question. So I um, have been writing about feminist healthcare since 2012 under that name. 
and um, have been a clinician since then and have been very fortunate to um, be an out uh, queer clinician and have a lot of queer patients in my practice, have a lot of people who have disclosed sexual assault histories. Um, and a large part of what I do clinically is train providers on what's called trauma-informed care. And over the last <clears throat> 11 years now of talking about feminist healthcare and talking about trauma-informed care and teaching different clinicians, I have found that part of what um, comes up even after I've sort of presented an entire trauma-informed care framework, is clinicians really still struggling with understanding how the care that we provide every day can be traumatizing to people. And it can be very hard to recognize that even the standard care that we do can cause people harm. And part of what I hope to continue to write about as an ethicist um, and also as a clinician is to really say, you know, there are ways to provide care that does not cause harm. Um, and talking about the ways that actually we willfully ignore the harm that we're doing um, contributes to this broader narrative of how um, people are experiencing harm in the system. So whenever I do write under Feminist Midwife or elsewhere, I'm always trying to write both for patients and for clinicians um, and for clinical learners, because I think, A, the power dynamic within healthcare is a problem. <laughs> um, that's the most simple way to put it. Um, we really need to be reframing what empowerment looks like in the healthcare setting and really rethinking if patients come in with all the power and we as clinicians just receive pieces of that power to be able to provide the care that they're asking us to provide for them, how differently would all of this go? Um, and consent is one of the easiest sort of interlocutors to think about how are we distributing power between ourselves? Is consent being respected as this um, communicator of whose power exists where? Um, and in terms of writing for both clinicians and for patients, language like this, language like medical sexual assault and the broader work that I'm working on around clinical rape culture is meant to be language that is accessible to patients um, so that they can use that language so that they have that um, herne hermeneutic to draw from when they're describing their own experience to say like something about this didn't feel right. I could call this the same thing that I would call it if it were outside of the setting. I can use the exact same language. So my hope is, you know, as scholarly and convoluted as some papers can be, and I feel like in spots in this paper, it is that, um, it's also meant to be um, an everyday language that uh, people can draw from. I want to ask you a question about that. And um, I feel like this is going to be, yeah kind of an awkward question to get out, but anyhow, I'll give it a shot. Um, Cause I was wondering through the paper. So you um, in the paper, you provide in one place, a distinction between kind of like, I'm paraphrasing, this isn't how you put it, but something like um, sex, sexual assault that happens within a medical procedure or a medical setting from more like straightforward sexual abuse 
by somebody. And I think you're contrasting like the very recent Larry Nassar case where he had this role with the American um, Olympic gymnast team and he was just doing sexual predation. Um, and I think that you were um, drawing a contrast against that kind of like predation case from the educational case. And I think I can, I think there might be a reason to do that because, and I guess this is getting to a broader question. I told you this is going to be awkward. Sorry about this. That's okay. (laughs) It's getting to another question about like, what makes a sexual assault sexual compared to just a violent assault? Does it have to involve any kind of sexual intent or sexual reward on the part of the, um, attacker or does it simply have to involve the parts of a person's body that are connected to or thought of as being sexualized because I was guess I was wondering like so we've got Larry Nasser who's doing like definite sexual predation on these young girls but that's very different from medical students who are having to being told to etc conduct these pelvic exams on um unconscious patients and then it seems also like you could almost think that an assault is an assault, whether it involves penetration or not. Like you mentioned earlier in our conversation, like having your breasts examined or maybe a penile examination. And I was even thinking that even having something done to your mouth can be very sexual. So like, does it have to involve um, genitalia necessarily? Or how do we sort of find where that border is for something to be a sexual assault compared to simply just a, a medical assault, I guess. Sure. Yeah. So I think there's a couple questions in there. One is, um, whether or not someone has to be penetrated for this to qualify as sexual assault. And there's a section in the paper where I say, I'm using these educational public exams under anesthesia as this, um, worst example of what happens that should check all these boxes to say this is medical sexual assault. There is no question. There wasn't consent. There is penetration. This is sexual assault. But I also say later on um, how penetration does not have to be involved. Any intimate touch um, would qualify. Anything that the patient would identify as sexual assault should qualify. Um, So it's not always the clinician's intention, like with these exams, since the intention is an educational opportunity, really it's not a sexual fulfillment. Um, And clinically, I have written previously about how important it is that clinicians are very clear uh, how we define those boundaries to say nothing sexual is happening here from the clinician side, even if for the patient, a lot of things might be happening. For the patients, a lot of the touch that we do may be reminiscent of other things in their lives or may call forward past experiences that they've had. We as clinicians, it is our responsibility to maintain a very firm clinical boundary around what we're doing. Um, And I have written about that elsewhere and I cite that here. Um, So I would say, in sort of the checklist, whatever the patient would identify as sexual assault is sexual assault. um, And that includes in the clinical setting. 
Um, so breast or chest, rectal, genital, uh, penetrating exams or external exams. Um, I agree with you in terms of things that happen with people's mouths. There are, um, there was a case, I believe, out of Brazil um, where an anesthesiologist during a surgery uh, was on one side of the curtain while the surgeons were on the other and placed his penis inside of the patient's mouth while that person was unconscious or partially conscious. And the ways in which people who are anesthetized are othered and are sexualized and are used for people's uh, personal means, whether those means are sexual or whether those means are for medical education, I find it to be a very blurry line. Um, so you brought up how I described about the case of Larry Nasser, who was very clearly a sexual assailant using healthcare as a crime of opportunity. The way that um, rape culture happens generally, and I mention it in this paper, but another paper is coming to talk about this more broadly, rape culture um, often is defined by systems of normalization, whether we're talking about language or behavior, that then allow for systems of degradation where people are openly bullied or openly harassed or openly um, shamed for their bodies or for their activity. Once you have these building blocks of systems where someone where something is normalized and then uh, people are openly degraded, it's much easier to have an environment where people are openly assaulted. <clears throat> so within sort of that environment of people being assaulted, whether we're talking about someone being assaulted in the name of a healthcare exam or someone being assaulted in the name of on purpose sexually assaulting someone, I would argue, and I do in this paper, that those lines are very fuzzy. However, as a clinician um, who very much wants the best for um, clinicians and for clinical learners, I really firmly want to state that there are differences between what Larry Nasser did and what people who are causing trauma to patients, perhaps without knowing or um, really without meaning to and are coming from a good place. Those are two different groups of people, but the actual act of what they're doing, unfortunately, is very similar and um, calling them the same thing is the purposeful work that I do in this paper to say, stop doing this. No one wants any of us to be compared to Larry Nasser. So stop doing this thing that we know qualifies in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's really helpful. Um, did you face any challenges when you were writing this paper, conducting this research? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, I would say academically speaking, I was incredibly well supported. Um, so I am a PhD student at St. Louis University, as you mentioned, and definitely came into that program uh, very feministically focused, very focused on um, illuminating queer theory in my work, um, and very focused on talking about um, sex and gender and sexuality in all its complexity in healthcare provision and in healthcare reception. And whether with faculty or with classmates, I have just been so well supported and I'm really grateful. I think I had a lot of internal strife <laughs> trying <laughs> to decide 
whether or not um, calling students rapists or calling clinical educators rapists was the right move and really sought to um, sort of reconcile that in my own soul to figure out, is this going to have sort of the, the force that I'm hoping for it to? And I think it does. I think that I provide enough of an awareness for clinical learners and the position that they're being put in and sort of this diffusion of responsibility that happens when we're educators or when we're working in a system or when we're working within um, our own specialties culture of this is how we teach people or this is what we do. As a clinical educator for 11 years, I know all of those nuances and um I hope that I was able to speak to them well enough to say, um, as educators, as learners, no one wants to be putting anyone in this position, um, least of all the patients who are experiencing assaults. Um, so to really keep coming full circle in that way, I think too, this is one of the first papers I wrote in my doctoral program. And I really felt like I had to get it all out and get a lot of things done. And so the opportunity to quote one of my own feminist origin stories, Catherine McKinnon, I mean, I just swoon thinking about the fact that I was able to quote, quote her, um, same with Terry Capsalis, um, her book, public, public privates talking about, <clears throat> uh, people who are learning pelvic exams. She was one of the first people to label um, those as sexual assault. And I quote her here, like, it's just like heroes coming to mind. Similarly, thinking about um, calling forward Pat Parker's work, um, a queer Black lesbian uh, poet, to be able to say, you know, how can I bring um, these these folks forward? I also read um, a lot about sexual assault, listen to music about sexual assault and the ability to use song lyrics from one of my favorite artists at the beginning. I felt like I was just trying to squeeze it all in and I, um, I really feel like I was able to. And so it also, I feel like the energy <laughs> that I had as a first year doctoral student is also um, very much a part of this. It's nice to kind of have that all memorialized in one spot. Yeah, that makes sense. I also wonder from what you said, is it ever a challenge for you to um, wear both hats as it were to be that kind of uh, critical friend within your own field? Like, do you ever find a tension there or have you found a way to just reconcile those two roles that you have basically? Yeah. You know, I think as a nurse midwife, as an advanced practice clinician, um, part of our professional identity, part of our clinical identity and part of the art of the work of midwifery is always being able to be interprofessional, to be able to be collaborative to support um, a midwifery and a nursing framework alongside the medical framework that we work within. So I feel like that dance is very much just a part of the clinical midwife life that I lead. And so now, you know, learning to be an ethicist um, and having some really lovely role models in ethics 
who are able to um, balance both the clinical and the ethical mentality of things have really shown me um, how to be able to do that well. I think um, for the clinicians, it's obvious that I'm uh, talking as a clinician, even if I'm leaning much harder into the uh, ethics scholarship. And I think for ethicists, it's very obvious that I'm talking as a clinician. Um, so it'd be hard to divorce those. And I don't want to, I'm trying to um, marry them beautifully, but um, I hope that I'm able to continue doing that dance um, because I think, especially um, in a field where ethics does not come up nearly as often as perhaps it does in other fields or um, doesn't have the same uh, deep bench of tradition to pull from like end-of-life care or um, things like that, that um, within sexual and reproductive health care and within clinical learning, um, intimate exams and um, people's intimate bodies are not often talked about in ethics um, from that lens. And so um, I hope that I keep doing that well. So I wonder if you have any um, final takeaway messages that you hope people will glean from the paper. Yeah, I think really pelvic exams in particular for people who experience them are such a vulnerable touch point that if the first one is not done gently and compassionately and with full respect for people's bodily and decisional autonomy, it sets someone up for the rest of their life in their intimate health care. They will avoid care. Um, they will be scared of their providers. It will be very difficult for us to rebuild a therapeutic relationship with someone. And so the utmost respect for consent and people's bodies should be happening, particularly around intimate exams. But really, these should be the canary in the coal mine for how we're treating people broadly across healthcare. And I think one worry that I had with this paper is people will think that this only applies to educational pelvic exams under anesthesia. And really, one of the things that I talk about is how I don't speak to the emergency doctrine in this paper. And that's the idea that if someone comes in in an emergency, we presume consent to be able to stabilize that person um, until they're able to then give consent um, related to the rest of their care. And something that I know very well as a clinician, and particularly from the perspective of um, of a midwife is that things in healthcare are called emergencies that are not emergencies. And we will use um, emergencies as a way to just do what we want to do to people's bodies. And that can be in the case of somebody having a baby in an emergency coming up that in community or home birth settings, we would never call an emergency, but in the hospitals we do. And so we act against people's bodies without doing consent in the process or without taking a beat and realizing this person may or may not consent to what we're doing. And I think um, part of what is said in this article kind of in the background is you should be seeking explicit consent for these exams. What I don't talk about in the paper is what if someone says no? If there is a no, 
we need to be equalizing our support for someone consenting to or deciding against something. And consent is a very unfortunate word for what we do because it linguistically sets up this idea of someone consents, they say yes. There isn't a neutral word that we're using to say, I'm either receiving a yes or receiving a no. Instead, it's a presumed receiving a yes. And if we can't get rid of the word consent, uh, which I don't think that we can because it's pervasive across the intimate experience at this point, then we need to recreate the narrative around receiving a no. And if someone declines, if they decide against or decline instead of refuse, uh, for example, then we need to say, okay, this is then what uh, this looks like. Thank you for letting me know what's going to work for you. And in the case of all educational student involvement, people should always be able to say no. And really, in all of people's healthcare, they should be able to say no. So hopefully, um, the extensions of this um, will reach that way. The second thing that I hope is um, that queer art really can be wonderfully integrated into publications. Um, Pat Parker is one of my favorite poets. Um, Shingudzo is one of my favorite artists. So to be able to say, you know, here are things that, you know, are in our world or in our lives, um, that can absolutely be translated into the work that we do. And I'm so grateful, um, for IJ Fab for this, <laughs> for to be um, to be able to include um, other art in this way, because um, the same way that the stories of what happens in healthcare reaches patients, whether through the news or through things like this, um, the art of what people's lived experiences are should be reaching us too. Thank you. It's been so good to speak to you, Stephanie. Thanks so much again for having me. And thank you for listening to this episode of FabGab. You can find Stephanie's paper linked in this episode's notes, along with a transcript of our discussion. FabGab is hosted and produced by me, Catherine McKay. You can find our other episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts of quality. You can subscribe to FabGab so that you'll never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening. Bye. <laughs>